0: So raise your hand if you are so done with the political season in 2020. Okay. I am too. I mean, I'm done, done. Um, It's not only the amount of ads that are on TV, and I know this happens every election cycle, but it's not just the national election, it's the local ones too. You can't hardly watch a sporting event or any show on TV without every two minutes another political ad. So that part of it's really got me over the edge. But then to top it off, it seems like now more than ever, it's just not the amount of ads, it's the content as well. And I'm not talking about one specific party or another, and not just the national election. I'm talking about every political ad right now just seems to be ultimately vicious. And while I try to do much of my own research on my own, a lot of these ads just simply are not true on both sides. So I would propose this, I think as far as political campaigns and ads go, what we need to do is bring back this commercial, it, maybe you're familiar with it, but it played some years ago. I think it's time for this political ad. Well, you're wrong. I'm wrong? You're the one who misrepresented the I fact that you're Are you kidding? Your proposal is ridiculous. Have no rights oh, no, you are the right, worst example of politics.
1: Flip flop or flip flop. Your proposal is ludicrous. My proposal will go exactly the way I say it will. My dead body. I think somebody needs a timeout. That's the power
0: of one. I motion that I be issued the timeout and. Wow. Me too. Yeah, for sure. You should get a timeout. I apologize. And I motion that we, uh, I, start showing more respect. Civility. Pass it on. That'd be neat to see on TV again nowadays. It would give you a little more faith in our political election system if people actually treated each other with the respect that they deserve. I don't know if it's being taught so much anymore, but when I was a young kid growing up, this was the adage that We were taught if you didn't have something nice or constructive to say about somebody, you just kept your mouth shut. Maybe it's because it's things like Facebook and other social media or the fact that people can talk about others so anonymously nowadays. It's not just the amount of what's being said, but it's the viciousness with which things are being said. I think that carries over even in our face-to-face conversations sometimes. If you really stop to listen to some of the things that people are saying nowadays, it's just downright hateful. So I wonder if maybe this rule shouldn't be implemented more nowadays that sometimes people need to just learn to keep their mouths shut. But what about those times when we actually have to open up our mouths and say something? One is, what are we supposed to do if that's not an option? And there are times like that if we see somebody spiritually struggling. That was part of last week's lesson. We are obliged as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to say something for the sake of their souls more than our own benefit. There's also times when we see somebody headed towards error or maybe they're toying with things that are just plain false, especially in spiritual matters, but others as well. We're compelled by the love of Christ to actually say something, to issue warning, to offer guidance, especially if we've had the life experience or reached a level of maturity where we can actually offer some good insights to other people. And what about the opportunities the Lord gives us to actually share our faith, especially with those who have no clue how much God absolutely loves this world? We are not just offered the opportunity, but we are compelled to say something. What do we do in those situations? And when that question crosses our mind, should I say something or not? Paul today is going to teach us, yeah, there are times where you absolutely need to say things. But what we're going to learn in the answer to our lesson today, it's less about what we're saying as far as what's coming out of our mouths as it is what's coming out of our hearts. And there's a very simple way in which Paul gives us this. He says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. Most people will read that passage and they only hear the first part. Okay, I need to say nice things to other people but there's so much more packed in here, and there's so much that Paul is trying to teach the Ephesians and the Holy Spirit us that we need to unwrap this just a little bit. And so what I want to do is spend some time in the context in which Paul says these words. Now, maybe by now the whole concept of Ephesians and the letter Paul wrote to them is fresh and familiar to you. And the reason I say that is because exactly one month ago, we had another nagging question that we answered from this very letter Paul's letter to the Ephesians. You may or may not recall, but it was the lesson on whether or not we're thinking too small when it comes to God, his interaction in our lives, and how he works with this entire world. And of course, Paul's conclusion is, yeah, oftentimes human beings think way too small, because God can do immeasurably more than we could ever hope for, or even dream up in our little human brains. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because at that time I went through context, and that's really been about the only downside to having the two locations As I preached that lesson down in Fort Atkinson. And I don't know if Pastor Abrahamson used this clip or not as far as context goes here in Cottage Grove, but I'm going to show parts of it again. One of the things I want to if you will clue you in on, is that the letter to the Ephesians is actually written in two parts. The first three chapters are what we would call the doctrinal part. Basically, Paul reviews the gospel lesson, the message of God's love. And there's doctrine to that. There's teaching to that. And what he does in the second part, and that's what we're going to get into today, is he takes these doctrines, these truths, and then he wants us, and the Holy Spirit directs us to apply them to our human lives. And there's two ultimate applications to the message of God's love. One is we love God in return. And then secondly, it impacts our hearts and lives in such a way that we reflect and show Christ's love to other people as well. That's what the last three chapters of the book of Ephesians talk about. Now you might think, okay, Pastor, I remember this. I remember you saying this or Pastor Abraham is saying this, but I also find out that sometimes it's important to go over all the details, even if it's a bit redundant. Because if we don't really set ourselves back into the context in which Paul is writing these things, we're going to lose a big chunk of this message, and it is an important and vital message. So forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but there are certain details that we need to understand because of the things that Paul says. One detail is is this is part of the prison letters, these four letters that Paul wrote during his first Roman imprisonment. What that tells us is the Holy Spirit provided the Apostle Paul with a good deal of time to actually sit down and write these letters. Now, the one to the Ephesians wasn't the primary letter that he sat down to write. It was the one to the Colossians. And if you're looking over my shoulder, you can read about this Colossian heresy that was going on. And there's a lot of debate and questions what exactly that was. But basically, it was a watered-down form of the gospel. It was one of those teachings where it's like, yeah, Jesus is good for you, but it's not the full package. There's things that you need to do, things you need to believe in order to reach the ultimate of what God wants for you. It was a bunch of malarkey. It was garbage. And so Paul was inspired to write to the Colossians to warn them and to tell them to get rid of this lie. And since the messenger was on his way to Colossae, it made perfect sense for the Holy Spirit to inspire Paul to write a letter to the Ephesians because he could drop this letter off there. We should remind ourselves Paul's not writing because of some specific problem going on in Ephesus. He's actually writing to encourage them and to give thanks to God for how God was blessing their work and all of their labors. But as it divides itself out and Paul reviews the message of God's love, he says there's so much more that God would have for you. And sometimes I think as Christians we fall into this foolish thinking that God is only hopeful for our eternity. Someday I get to go to heaven and have the greatest time of my life. But there's so much in each of these letters that talks about God and our relationship right now and how God wants so much more for us right now. And that's really what we get into when we talk about how we speak to each other As brothers and sisters in Christ. So I'm going to show you this context video and it's an edited version so I've chopped out the first three chapters because I played that last time. So I'll play the introduction and then the part about the last three chapters and I always like to encourage you that if you ever want to see the whole video and some of these are longer, so we cut them down. If you want to watch it all in its full context, just let me know, either after the service or send me an email, and I'll either send you the video or a link to it so that you can put all the pieces together. But for the sake of this morning's discussion, this is what
2: we need to review. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The story of how Paul came to the city of Ephesus is really interesting. You can go read about it in Acts chapter 19. Ephesus was a huge city. It was the epicenter of worship for most of the Greek and Roman gods. And for over two years, Paul had a really effective missionary presence there and lots of people became followers of Jesus. Years later, after being imprisoned by the Romans, Paul wrote this letter. The movement of thought in the letter divides into two really clear halves. In the first half, Paul is exploring the story of the gospel, how all history came to its climax in Jesus and in his creation of this multi-ethnic community of his followers. The second half of the letter is linked to the first by the word, therefore. And here Paul explores how the gospel story should affect how we live every part of our life story, personally, in our neighborhoods and communities and in our families. So let's dive in. The second half of the letter begins with Paul shifting gears and he starts challenging the reader to respond to the gospel story by how they live their own life story. So he starts in chapter 4 with just the everyday life of the church. The church is a big family with lots of different kinds of people, but he emphasizes that they are one. And one is a key word in this chapter. They are one body that's unified by one spirit. They have one Lord with one faith. They have one baptism, they believe in one God. That's a lot of unity. However, Paul says unity is not the same thing as uniformity. He goes on to explore how Jesus' new family consists of lots of very, very different kinds of people. But they're all empowered by the one Holy Spirit, each using their unique talents and passions to serve and to love each other and to build up the church and here he uses two really cool metaphors one is building up the church as a new temple and the second is that they are all becoming a new humanity with Jesus as the head and this new humanity is a metaphor he's gonna then run with for the next couple chapters Paul challenges every Christian to take off their old humanity like a set of old clothes and to put on their new humanity in which the image of God is being restored And he then goes on into this long section where he compares this new and old humanity. So instead of lying, new humans speak truth. Instead of harboring Anger. they peacefully resolve their conflicts. Instead of stealing, new humans are generous. Instead of gossiping, they encourage people with their words. Instead of getting revenge, new humans forgive. Instead of gratifying every sexual impulse, new humans cultivate self-control of their bodily desires. Instead of getting drunk, new humans come under the influence of God's Spirit. And he spells out what that influence looks like in four different ways. The first two have to do with singing singing together but also singing alone and this is really interesting that the first thing that Paul thinks of about how the Spirit works in the lives of Jesus people is singing and music the third sign of the Spirit's influence is being thankful for everything and the fourth Is that the Spirit will compel Jesus' followers to put themselves underneath others and to elevate others as more important than themselves. And Paul actually expands on this fourth point by showing how it works in Christian marriage. So you have a wife who follows Jesus. She is called to respect and to allow her husband to become responsible for her. And the husband is called to love his wife and to use his responsibility to lay down his selfish agenda and to prioritize his wife's well-being above his own. And Paul says it's this kind of marriage that's actually reenacting the gospel story. The husband's actions mimic Jesus and his love and his self-sacrifice. The wife's actions mimic the church, which allows Jesus to love her and to make her new. Paul then applies the same idea to children and parents as well as slaves and masters. Paul closes out the letter by reminding these Christians of the reality of spiritual evil. These are beings and forces that will try to undermine the unity of Jesus's people and to compromise their new humanity. And so Paul challenges them to stand firm and to put on this metaphorical set of body armor which he describes in detail. And Paul has drawn all of these pieces of body armor from the book of Isaiah and how Isaiah depicted the messianic king. And so now as the Messiah's father we need to make the Messiah's attributes our own since we make up Jesus's body. Practically, I think Paul means for Christians to begin to form habits, proactively using prayer and the scriptures and our relationships with each other to help us grow and mature as followers of Jesus. And that's the letter to the Ephesians. Very powerful. It's where Paul summarizes the whole gospel story and how it should reshape every part of our life story.
0: That's the neat thing about this book. I'm sure there's sections you're very familiar with, like the armor section, or you've probably been to a wedding and you've heard the marriage section probably as a text or at least one of the readings. Of course, everybody knows the the Ephesians two: "By grace you are saved through faith. Uh, it's a gift of God. It's something that we can't do on our our own." But there's so much of the letter to the Ephesians that is either forgotten or lost, because that passage goes on. We are all created to do good works, to bring glory to God, and ultimately part of what a letter to the Ephesians talks about is how we can also be a blessing to one another and ourselves. And that's what this section really starts to focus in on. Now with that as the backdrop and understanding, our answer to the question of whether we should say something or not, Paul begins with a contrasting word, instead. What's he contrasting? This is the section, the, the closest context that comes right before, and you'll see this throughout these last three chapters in the letter to the Ephesians. There's, there's two things that Paul keeps pounding away on. One is, is that we become uh, a, a blessing to each other in the body of Christ. And just think about that. If you've looked at local or visible congregations, some act and work beautifully together. People love one another, more work is accomplished, more gospel is shared, more glory is brought to God. But then you'll also look at some congregations, like a family, and they're, they're dysfunctional. There, there's constant bickering, there's fighting. And so what happens is the people aren't blessed, God's name isn't glorified, the gospel isn't shared. And, and that's what Paul is talking about. There's a way to honor and serve God that ends up not only blessing others, but ourselves. And that's the second part of this. The more and more we practice this sanctification, this actually living out our faith, the more mature we become, in and it's this circular thing. The more mature you are, the more proficient you become at actually doing the things that God has created us and designed us to do. Now, why do I spend so much time telling you what Ephesians is about? Because we're honing down in on this one passage, and it speaks volumes. When we not only look at the specific things that Paul is saying, but how He's saying that It's a mirror of what this lesson is about. Because I know many of you are very wise. Many of you have all kinds of years of schooling and education. Many of you have life experience beyond my own. And when you speak, people recognize that you speak solid and valid things. But we also recognize that we're always tempted to speak in ways that aren't necessarily glorifying God or honoring one another. In fact, the very season that we're in, that's becoming so obvious to us. And so the Holy Spirit, through Paul, wants us to remember it's not just the things you say, but how you say them. It's not just what comes out of your head, out of your mouth. It's what comes out of your heart. And so he has this contrasting word. Instead of being immature, instead of being like your old self, instead there's something else you need to know. And he goes on to talk about that speaking the truth in love. Now, you notice I put the word speaking in brackets here because that word is not actually in the original text in what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. What Paul actually does is he takes the word, the noun truth, and he changes it into a verb. It's called a participle as far as grammar goes. So Paul says, I want you to truth each other in love. And since we don't talk that way, and it's hard for the brain to get around it, what Paul is inferring is the different things that we do in our lives that communicate truth to others. Maybe it's just how we live our life. Maybe you've recognized that in other people. There, there are certain people you look at and they go, they're an honest person. And other people you look at and go, that person is a scoundrel. I'm not ever going to trust that person. I, I can't. Sometimes it's the values or the goals or, or the priorities that we have in life. It clearly says this is a person of honor and truth. And I'd like to get to know that person more. I'd like to listen to what they have to say. But ultimately, probably the number one way in which we communicate truth to each other is through our mouths. That's my suspicion why the translators added that word to it. So instead of just truthing each other, we're speaking the truth. That's the most common way in which we can actually share truth, God's truth, with other people. And as soon as these words come out of Paul's mouth that as this Ephesian congregation has the opportunity to interact with each other as members of the body of Christ, as soon as he gets done saying, please, please be honest with one another, he adds the modifier in love. The word he uses is the agape word for love. And I know we've had these discussions before. There's several different words in the Greek language for love. This is the one that more often than not is associated with God's love towards this world and us. It's a one-sided kind of love. It's a love that comes from the greater to the lesser. And when Paul says truth each other in love, immediately we're to think of the way in which God has loved us. Everything God has ever told us has been absolutely 100% true and honest. Even the hard truths that God speaks, he always speaks to us with this heart of love. He doesn't do it to convict us, He does it so that we understand what is true and what is false. So that we're part of the process of being rescued and saved. In fact, the whole sending of his son is a truth. Because he made a promise and he kept it. And Christ is the living fulfillment of the truth of God's word. And you and I have been blessed to hear that. And not just to hear the words, but to hear the emotion that God himself has towards us. Towards his children who once were lost that he desperately wanted to find. In this same way, Paul says, when you speak to each other, brothers and sisters in Christ, remember that you are in Christ. And when you choose your words, don't only choose them wisely so that what you say is honest, but so that what you say is also loving. Now, here's the thing that Paul says, and that's the part that most of us know as far as this answer in this verse goes, but there's something unique that Paul says. It's the way in which he says it. I know in our language, and you don't get caught up with the grammar probably as much as I do, but he puts it in a very specific voice, which sends a message, too. He says, what I'm saying is, what I'm suggesting to you is very much possible. That's what the subjunctive voice offers us. This is a real possibility, but it's not a certainty. So so what is Paul saying by doing that? Well, what he's saying is is that when you do these things, when you choose to speak the truth in your interactions, it builds up the body of Christ. But when you choose to do it in love, it helps and is a blessing to you. It's part of your spiritual maturity. You can be a blessing to each other if you choose to do this. But beware there's a problem. And nobody knew about this problem more than the Apostle Paul. You can go to sections of his other letters and hear Paul talk about this wrestling match between the old man of unbelief and the new man of faith. The Christian has both those natures. One of the beautiful things of death is the sinful nature is stripped away and gone forever. But right now, that nature has been defeated. It's been nailed to the cross. So we can actually make sanctified choices To nurture the new man faith or have it nurtured by God or we can make a choice to walk away. And Paul is encouraging these Ephesians, please, please, as you work with one another, as you serve God, as you look for God's blessings in your own life, please let that new man come shining through. So when you choose your words, choose them wisely, but also examine why you're choosing them and how you're saying them. And I know a lot of times what we're taught is is these are the things we should be doing for others. That's part of what this letter is about, about showing our love to God and each other. But Paul also wants us to understand when we do that, it's it's a healthy thing for us personally, choosing to speak this way. Paul says it's a blessing to us because what happens is, is we do mature in our faith and we become more like the head. Your life starts to reflect the life of Jesus Christ not as a way to make God happy or to impress other people, but all of a sudden, there's portions of your lives that fall away, things that used to be entanglements, things that used to hold you back. The more that your life is a living reflection of the very Son of God, I'm not saying that you won't be tempted or that you won't face challenges, but every time you do, they take on a new aspect. And you look at it as a challenge and not a problem. You look at the opportunity that God offers rather than this big anchor around your neck that you have to do. When God opens the doors and says, Christian, I'd like you to say something to somebody who's in desperate need and you stand there with that moment of decision, do I just unload both barrels on them? Do I just water it down because I don't want to hurt their feelings? Or do I speak the way that Jesus Christ would have said something? Do I tell them what's honestly true but with the deepest, most passionate love in my heart. Not just a human love, but a love that God has shown to me. You see how different the words are when they come from the place of God's love instead of just human love or maybe something else within us human beings? Paul says that will build up the church. That will help you mature, and you will, as you mature, become more and more like the head. In fact, it brings honor to God, and it is truly a blessing to you. So there's going to be times in your life when you face that real opportunity. Maybe you're an Esther moment. Maybe you're a moment like Paul. Should I say something or not? There are times where Paul would say, no, keep your mouth shut. Because maybe the person's not listening. Maybe they don't want your help. Or maybe you're not ready to open your mouth and speak the way that God would speak to you. But on other occasions, Paul would have to tell us, you know what, you need to say something. You've got a brother and a sister who's struggling. You've got a family member who is desperately seeking help, and you might be the only person. Who knows that God has put you in that place and in that time to be the one to say something to help. So speak. But be careful how you speak. Make sure you wrap all of your words not just in human love, but in Christian love, which brings up this interesting irony. Now, I don't know if this is your experience or not, but some of the most hateful things that I've ever heard spoken in a meeting, some of the most arrogant, some of the most condescending things I have heard spoken to another Christian have been at church meetings and sometimes at synod meetings. And I hate to have to admit it. First of all, I want to give thanks to God. That doesn't seem to be the experience here at Abiding Shepherd. But I do recall some former congregations I I was at There there was some real tension that went on amongst people. And I do remember synod meetings where I wasn't sure whether it was a church meeting or if I'd walked in on a political debate. Because while there was a lot of truth spoken on both sides of the aisle, it wasn't always spoken out of love. Sometimes what was said was simply to be right, or to win the argument, or there were a lot of egos involved, and to be honest, If I have to really admit, one of the reasons why I don't like to go to some of the church meetings is because I know how sinful the human nature can be and how much the devil tempts us. I don't like to see others that way, and I don't like to be tempted to do that myself. And so sometimes the biggest and best thing for me to do is to just keep my mouth shut. And so I've kind of over the years learned to do that. Truth of the matter is, is that oftentimes we are given the opportunity to show Christ's love to others, and we do just the opposite. So here's what the Holy Spirit has wisely done. Because when we come together as a congregation and as the church, we have the opportunity to bless others and bring glory to God's name. Whenever we gather in Jesus' name, we have the opportunity to actually show this world what God's love looks like. The Holy Spirit, in the rest of this book, talks about ways we can practice this in our private lives. And the video alluded to one of them, and I accidentally jumped ahead. Can you imagine what our marriages would be like if when given the opportunity to speak to our spouse, we not only chose wise and truthful words, but before they actually came out of their mouths, we examined our motivation behind what we're about to say. I'll be the first to admit, I probably said some of the most hurtful things to my wife sometimes because my sinful ego was getting the best of me, and sometimes because I foolishly didn't stop to think. And so I pray to God that he would help me choose my words wisely, but to stop and examine that what I'm about to say isn't just because I love my wife, but that what I'm about to say is because God has chosen to love me. Can you imagine how blessed the church would be and how much the name of Jesus Christ would be glorified if the Christian marriages of this congregation took that same attitude of speaking the truth in love. There's a section, and again, it was alluded to in the video, where we can practice this in our families, whether we're talking about parents and children, brothers and sisters, or whatever other human relationship we might be describing. Can you imagine how different the name of Jesus would be glorified and how much the church would be blessed if within the family itself we practiced the Christian love that we have been shown. Before condemning or criticizing one another, before children sassing back to mom and dad and mom and dad losing patience with children, imagine if we stopped and actually viewed what we're about to say through the lens of God's love for us. How many times have we sassed back to God and he has patiently and lovingly put up with it and ended up forgiving us when we finally realized just how wrong we were? And how many times has God had every right to point a finger at us and condemn us and instead what he's chosen to speak to us is nothing but love? How much more would the name of Jesus be glorified? How much more would the church be blessed if as individual families we practice this very same thing of speaking truth but doing it with God's love. Now Paul also talks about slaves and masters and that whole relationship has changed over time. It's more the employee or employer. So let me use this as the application of that. Imagine if your friendships took on the same kind of attitude. I know there are friendships that have long ago passed away because people were angry with one another. They couldn't find the right words to say to each other, to communicate properly what they really felt Over years, resentment builds up, or things aren't said that should have been said. What if all of our relationships we nurtured and fostered in such a way where people understood that even though we don't always choose the right word to say, they know we're speaking from a place of love? Whether you're talking about a face-to-face conversation, or I'm strange that I have to even say it nowadays, whether it's a text message or something you post or something you share through some form of social media, what if instead of thinking that that person really can't tell what you're saying, they understood that whatever you had, as far as your communication goes, was dripping in love? Not your love. God's love. Because every time you open your mouth to speak something to them, you stop to consider how many times God chose to speak to us in the most loving way possible. And if you ever get to the point where you think, you know what, Pastor, that's just a lot of work. Those relationships, some of them need to go away. I don't think I even want to go through that hassle. Then what we need to do is stop and consider how the truth being spoken in love was modeled for us and done on our behalf at the cross. There the Son of God could have condemned the entire world. Imagine him hanging there if he had only spoken truth. I'm dying for you and none of you really appreciate this. I'm paying for your sins, and none of you deserve it. That's truth. But instead, he chose to speak his words in love. Father, forgive them. Most of us are clueless. They were at the cross. And how many times in our lives have we ignorantly done and said things because we didn't stop and ask God, what should I say, and how should I say it? If it ever seems like it's just too much effort, too much work to follow what the Holy Spirit tells Paul to teach us, then consider how your Savior spoke to us and for us as he made us members of his body, as he gave his life so that we could once again be part of the family of God. Should I say something? Sometimes it's wise not to. But when you're finding yourself in a situation where you need to, you're compelled to... Your responsibility is to actually say something. Speak truth. But do it in love. Not only will it be a blessing to that person to whom you are speaking, you might be surprised just how much of a blessing speaking the truth in love will be to you.
1: You don't have a ton of things in common with God. But there is one thing you speak. So to see. God spoke light into existence with his words. I wonder what you could speak into existence with your words this week. I wonder what kind of love you could speak into your marriage that feels like it's in neutral. I wonder what kind of courage you could speak into the heart of a child who's hurting. I wonder what kind of peace you could speak into your broken friendship. What kind of hope you could speak into your own weary soul. I want you to know that the most powerful words you're gonna speak this week is probably not gonna be on a stage or a conference call or closing the deal with a client that you want. The most powerful words you're gonna speak is probably just with one or two people listening, maybe zero. It's totally possible that the most powerful sentence you'll say this week is a thoughtful text message that you send to a friend who's walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It's the apology email that you finally get the courage to send It's the whispered prayers through tears in the middle of a dark night. Powerful words aren't just for preachers who stand behind pulpits. They're for parents who stand next to bunk beds and speak life with their kids, for spouses who share hopes and dreams, pillow talk, not criticism, for teenagers who stand up to bullies, stand up for the uncool kids. Your tongue is so small, but so powerful. Your tongue is telling a story.